Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. So let's talk about Daniel. We've been at it for 11 weeks now. This is our 11th and final week. And as we have gone through, we have learned a very great range of lessons. So let's talk about it. We come today to the last part, Daniel 11 and 12, although it's part of a bigger section, 10, 11, and 12, where Daniel's last vision is told. Now, if you happen to crack open a Bible this last week to Daniel 11 and 12, if you happen to read through it, you may have had the same question that I had when I read through it, and that is, why are we studying this? It's so confusing. If you did that and you read through it and saw all of the different kingdoms and kings and wars and alliances and marriages, and you, you might have said, I can't make sense out of this. Why don't we talk about something that's more accessible, something more easy to understand? Why don't we, for example, have a series on, say, the family? I've got challenges in family, you say, so I could benefit from that. And that is true. There are many who have challenges in family. In fact, I noticed one just a week or two ago. I was reading my Twitter feed on my phone, and I came across this tweet that a gentleman named Anton Rubaclini, Hispanic gentleman, had tweeted out that said this, I live in constant fear that Trump will deport my Latina mother-in-law who lives at 1837 3rd Street, L.A., 90023, Blue House, she gets off work at 6. <laughs> so maybe you can relate to the person who sent out that tweet and say, yeah, that, that's what we need. We need something on family. That's what we ought to be talking about, not Daniel 11 and 12. Well, we'll get there. Camp meeting, our focus is going to be on family. Or maybe you say, how about focusing on some of the kinds of emotional realities that we often battle? Things like anger and conflict or even communication. Or, or what about something like service? Let's talk about that. Much more accessible, much easier to understand. I get that. Or maybe you say, if we're going to do an expository series, choose a book and go through the book, how about something like Mark or John or Philippians? Something that's a lot closer, closer and more easy to understand. But Daniel 11 and 12? Wow. Well, I will admit, I will agree with you in this. Daniel 11 is probably much better served in the classroom than in the pulpit. Has meaning, has significance to us, but it's probably easier to sort through with a blackboard and conversation and questions. I'll agree with that. But I also believe that both Daniel 11 and 12 are just as much Scripture 
as are Mark and John and Philippians and the rest. So there must be something for us here today. Just a word about each chapter, and then we're going to really focus on Daniel 12. If I had to name these two chapters, if I had to choose a name to put at the top of the chapter that appears in Scripture, for Daniel 11, I would write the words, from here, dot, dot, dot. From here. Because you see, what happens is that it begins in Daniel's day and time, and it begins to unpack realities that are to come from here, from that very moment in time. talks about Persian kings and then other kingdoms, and it begins to build steam as it moves along the stream of time, finally coming to what we understand to be some end-time antichrist figure. From here, we're moving forward in time. And then if I had to write a title over chapter 12... I would write to eternity because it's here in chapter 12 that we encounter resurrection and new life and receiving the inheritance that has been promised. So in these two chapters, we have from here to eternity. I will tell you it's true that particularly chapter 11 but also chapter 12 has elements within it that are bewildering at times. In fact, if you were to take a set of Bible commentaries, different ones, and lay them out, open them up to Daniel 11 and 12, it is likely that you would find a range of interpretations for the very contents of the chapter, even in commentaries written by Seventh-day Adventists. So what do we do with it? Well, I want to suggest to you that out of this section of Daniel, particularly out of Daniel 12, there arise three realities that can apply to us all of these years later. The first reality that, that I think arises out of this text is one that we could say this way, even the confusion can be comforting. Even the confusion can be comforting. Honestly, this is apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature, by its very definition, Daniel, Revelation, certain parts of Ezekiel, by its very definition, it is full of symbols and signs and at times beasts and other things that, that people ever since it was given have been trying to define and interpret. And even people with devout commitment, devoted scholarship, can arrive at different conclusions. So that I understand it can sometimes feel confusing. But even the confusion can be comforting. You see, apocalyptic literature might work a little bit like this. When we lived in the city of Guadalajara in Mexico, one of the things our youth group used to do was to go out to the mountains around Guadalajara a whole group of us, including some of the adults in the church, and play Capture the Flag. Now, you haven't played Capture the Flag unless you play it in some big space of broken terrain where you really have to look to find the flag and where there's challenge to getting it and escaping untouched. So we used to love to play Capture the Flag. If you've played it, you know the purpose is you have the flag. It's maybe prominent, but in those cases hard to get to, up in a tree somewhere. 
And then the purpose is to try to go into the other, the enemy, if you will, territory, and capture their flag and get it back to your territory without getting caught. And we would play for hours on end. Now picture a capture the flag game where some of the opposing players have been captured. They're sitting here in prison, and one of this team's players is here defending them, making sure nobody comes and touches them so as to set them free. The others are off trying to capture the flag. Now the prisoners start to play with their guard. They start to mess with that guard's mind. They say, you know, we have someone coming. They're coming over there. They're coming over here. And pretty soon, you know how kids are. They come up with their own terminology, their own secret code. All the prisoners know it, but the guard doesn't. And they're saying things like, the phoenix is rising. Maximus is coming to get us. And that guard is freaking out. What are you talking about? Where is it going on? He doesn't know what's going on. They have their own terminology. They're trying to communicate to each other something that encourages them. We'll be rescued. And they find comfort in that. In an interesting and imprecise way, that's like apocalyptic literature. These signs and these symbols that the foe, the enemy, does not fully understand. In fact, the people of God may not always have fully understood it, but they did understand this. God was active. God was moving. He was sovereign over history. And they would ultimately be rescued. Even the confusion can be comforting. A number of different scholars write about that reality. I want to read you the words of Tremper Longman I've read from him two or three times throughout this series. One more time. He writes this about the symbolic numbers and the symbolic images and beasts. He writes, that leads us back to the function of the highly symbolic numbers, which are so difficult to figure out. Their purpose is not for date setting, but for comfort. They remind us that God knows what he is doing. God is sovereign and has set a limit on how long the present evil world will oppress us. These facts should comfort us by reminding us that God is in control of the situation. God calls us to live in the present while waiting with hope for the future. So even if you read Daniel 11, Daniel 12, or some of the other apocalyptic literature in Scripture, and even if at the end of that you end up saying, I'm not sure what all of this means, don't lose sight of the fact that to use C.S. Lewis's term out of the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is on the move. God is active. He's in history. He's trying to communicate to his people, I'm still here. I'm still present. Take comfort. That's one reality that I think arises out of both Daniel 11 and Daniel 12. But there's a second reality that arises. This reality is, even in the, from the worst of times, will come grand deliverance. Even from the worst of times will come grand deliverance. Deliverance. I want to read to you the verses that we read for the Scripture reading this morning, first four verses of Daniel 12. Notice what they say. At that time, Michael, 
The great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. If we take Daniel seriously, which I think is a good idea, if we take Daniel seriously, then what he's saying here is that life is going to get worse. In fact, he says, there is a time coming up on the globe, coming up on the planet, that for the very difficulty it will present to the human race, it will be worse than any that has preceded it. Bad times are coming, in other words. This is a theme that will be picked up and re-echoed by Jesus in the New Testament. Tough times ahead. Now, you know what it's like when you end up in true difficulty. It becomes hard to see beyond that moment, beyond that experience, beyond that sorrow and pain. The future suddenly seems dark. There seems no way out of this. Our entire focus becomes surviving the difficulty, probably not unlike what it would have been like for Daniel and his people in Babylon. Homeland destroyed. They are in exile. What is left? How will we ever get out of here? That's the experience. I know that experience firsthand because three years or so ago, Something I've shared with you, I had another experience that I'd had a number of times before. I broke something in my body, broke a bone. I lay on the floor of Drayson Center, my arm behind me twisted in severe pain. I didn't know it at the time, but I was to find out that I had dislocated the elbow, torn the ligaments, and broken the radial head. Didn't know any of that, didn't care about any of that. All I cared about was the intense pain I felt. That was my only focus. I remember consciously saying to myself, you better buck it up because it's going to be a while before you get any pain medication. And then suddenly, they were there. The good firefighters of Loma Linda Fire Department were there. And I remember even in that fog of pain thinking, that was fast. Found out later they were working out down the hall. <laughs> they did get there fast. But in that moment of pain and agony, nothing else mattered. It was just this experience, this moment, this pain. What am I going to do about this? Can you imagine, not just for Daniel, but for the people about whom Daniel writes, in a time to come near the end, he says, a time of trouble such as has never been. And yet... It is at that time that deliverance comes. That very moment when it is so difficult to think of anything but the trouble. The late 
writer and debater, atheist, Christopher Hitchens, had a publicist who got Hitchens connected up with a Christian writer, Larry Taunton. Taunton and Hitchens uh, struck up a rather unusual friendship. Not only were they friends, actually Hitchens stayed in Taunton's home for a period of time, but they began to have public debates discussing issues of God and atheism. Did God exist? Did he not? What were the indications that he did, etc.? They became friends. In fact, before Hitchens' death from cancer, they took two long road trips across America. Writing about one of those experiences, Taunton would later describe it in this way. He writes, My mind goes back to the Shenandoah. The skies are clear. The autumn leaves are translucent in the early afternoon sun. And the road ahead of us is open. In a strong, clear voice, Christopher is reading from the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. You remember that chapter, the resurrection of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He's reading from the Gospel of John. Reaching the 25th and 26th verses, his face lights up with recognition. He stops. I know this one too, he says. I didn't recall its connection with the resurrection of Lazarus. It's a great verse, I add, sensing we had reached a defining moment. Yes, Dickens thought so, Christopher says. And then taking off his reading glasses, he turns to me and asks, Do you believe us thou this, Larry Taunton? His sarcasm is evident, but it lacks its customary force. I do, but you already know that I did. The question is, do you believe us thou this, Christopher Hitchens? As if searching for a clever response, Hitchens hesitates and then speaks with unexpected transparency. I'll admit, it's not without appeal to a dying man. Those moments of great trouble that come becomes almost all we can see. We long to be delivered. And Daniel says, at that time, a time of trouble such as has never been, but something else happens. He says, at that time, Michael will arise. He will stand, and a resurrection will erupt. One scholar says this is the one and only time in the Old Testament, and stellar time it is, where we have a double resurrection, a double resurrection, resurrection of the righteous, resurrection of the wicked, a theme that will be picked up in the New Testament, but the only time in the Old Testament. Resurrection of those who are wise, of those who have led many to righteousness, they will shine like the stars forever and ever so that even from great trouble will come grand deliverance. So whatever you may fear on the road ahead, never forget there is something beyond it. Even from confusion, can come from comfort. 
even from times of great trouble, will come grand deliverance. But I think there's a third, a third reality that emerges from this chapter. Even in the end, we'll find a new beginning. Even in the end, we'll find a new beginning. Now, I'm not going to read it yet because I want to set some context. But I have to tell you, I find the last verse of Daniel powerfully moving. Remember the context. You remember Daniel, right? We met him, just a youth, probably not out of his teens. He's been captured. He's in exile. He's going through all of the harsh and damaging and difficult moments of those early days in exile. His homeland devastated a searing recent memory in his mind. The threats of a new culture lie before him. Different religions. What happened to his family? We met him there. And we have followed him step by step as he has moved throughout his life in exile. We've seen him take a stand for the right. We have seen him interpret the dream of the king. We have seen his sterling character, his prayer life with God on full display when all he had to do was hide in the closet. We have listened with awe as he has interpreted to potentates the dreams sent to them by divinity. We have seen him so deeply and powerfully moved by what he sees up ahead that he's literally down on hands and knees, shaking with fear, authentic with his emotions. We have seen him move from a young man in his late teens now to an elderly gentleman, soon to face the end of his life. For all we know, Daniel never returned to his homeland. He must know, even at this point in time, even in G Daniel chapter 12, that one day he will bow his head and breathe his last an exile in a foreign land, never having returned home never having felt the embrace of his city of his birth, never having worshipped in the temple of his God, never having seen the family members that were left way off in a foreign land. That's the context. Now the last verse, Daniel 12, verse 13. A linen-clad figure speaks to him. Christ, maybe, at least an emissary for Christ, and says, As for you, as for you, Daniel, as for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Go your way, Daniel. You've lived a long, faithful life life. You have known danger and threat and peril, and you have stood with a steely integrity. Go your way and rest. What do we know about longing 
for our inheritance. I suspect that most of us slept in our own bed last night, comfortable and secure homes, warm with the chill wind of Southern California in the air. We got up, took hot showers, got dressed, came to church where we worship in freedom. We don't know that longing, that yearning for the inheritance promised in the same way Daniel would have. We have so much of it here. Now, it's easy to forget what is to come. The well-known Christian writer, Philip Yancey, writes this. My pastor, he writes, decided to pull a vacation surprise on his four children. We're going to Junction City, Kansas, Peter told them. <laughs> Kansas. <laughs> Sorry about that if you're from Kansas. It's where my dad used to pastor a church, and we can have lots of fun there. Meanwhile, he made secret plans to spend one afternoon in Junction City, then drive on to enjoy the glories of Disney World. Ever trusting his children bragged to skeptical friends, we're going to Kansas for vacation. It's great. <laughs> All during the long drive from Denver to Junction City, Peter kept up morale by describing the wonders awaiting them. Playgrounds, a swimming pool, an ice cream stand, maybe even a bowling alley. After they arrived and after touring Granddad's old church, the kids were ready to check into a motel and go swimming when their dad dropped the bombshell. You know something? It's kind of boring here in Canvas. Why don't we just drive to Disney World? Mom reached in a bag and pulled out four custom-made Mickey Mouse hats. Peter expected his kids to jump up and down in delight. Instead, they complained. Oh, who wants to get back in the van? What about the swimming pool? You promised. I thought we were going to go bowling. The great surprise had backfired. For the next few hours, Peter sat behind the steering wheel and smoldered as his children expanded on all the advantages of Junction City over Disney World. <laughs> the whole thing reminded him of that famous quote by C.S. Lewis. These are Lewis's words. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Yancey concludes, as he later pointed out in a sermon, Peter had learned a valuable lesser, lesson about human nature. Our desires are too small. We stamp our feet and insist on a merry-go-round in Junction City when Disney World Space Mountain lies just down the road. Well, Daniel had reason to recognize the mud of the slum when he saw it, had reason to yearn for the delights of the sea. I sometimes wonder if we're so content with Junction City that Disney World never crosses our mind. I doubt such was true for Daniel. And there he is, 
the end of his book, at the end of his days, the linen-clad figure from heaven says to him, Daniel, let me show you something. And takes Daniel by the hand and marks off the limits of his inheritance and says to him, Daniel, do you see all of this? It's all yours. It all belongs to you. All of the sorrow, the suffering, the exile, the threat, the danger, the damage, all that you experienced, gone. You are now home. It's yours, courtesy of God. Do you long, do you yearn for the inheritance? Do you know what it is to recognize that even from the end will come the beginning? If that's something you long for, Scripture says God offers it. It can be yours. It's his gift to you. By his grace, he will bring you there. But he only has one request to make. One simple request. Dare to be a Daniel. God of grace, our hearts are stirred by this man's story and experience. But it's not he alone who stirs our hearts, but you. We thank you for the God you are who is sovereign over all and even out of the confusion of our world can bring comfort, will provide a grand deliverance, and when the end comes, we will discover a new beginning. Give us the strength, the wisdom, and the courage to be Daniels. In Jesus' name, amen.